Welcome to the Cherry Hill Sermon Podcast. The following message is a standalone message by Pastor Steve Patsia on Romans 14. Thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm going to invite you to do something we have not done at Cherry Hills for a long while, which is turn in our Bibles to a book other than the Gospel of Luke. As Pastor Brian. Ryan reminded us last week we are going to be returning to Luke later in the fall, but this morning I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 14. If you're still learning where things are in your Bible, Romans is about three quarters of the way back. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you as we do every week to grab one of the black Bibles we have in the seat either underneath you or in front of you there. Indeed, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that home as our gift to you, but you can find Romans 14 on page 790 on those black Bibles. Now you may be asking, why Romans 14? And that's a great question. Other than the fact that I had a free week to preach on anything I wanted to, let me tell you a little bit why I felt led to preach on Romans 14. The reason really goes back to two messages that I've given in the last year or so that have really just been doing a number in my life, that have been marinating in my life, so to speak. You ever have that where you read something in the Word or there's just something, you, an idea that you just can't get out of your mind, it just keeps coming back and back and back? Well, that's what's happened for me. There's just two ideas that won't go away. The first was a message I gave in April as we were in our series in the Gospel of Luke there about Jesus' words when he tells us not to judge others. Some of you were here for that, you might remember, but even if you weren't, it doesn't matter. The question that we asked that morning is, when Jesus tells us not to judge others, what is he talking about? Does he mean that we should be tolerant about all things the way the world defines tolerance today? Or is he talking about something else? Well, if you were here, we discovered that Jesus is not telling the church, not telling us to get rid of discernment, which is one of the words for judgment, determining between what is right and wrong. What he's forbidding us from doing as Christians is this thing called judgmentalism, right? What's judgmentalism? Well, it's where I condemn another person. I think Martin Luther King Jr. says it best. It's when I make a person an it or a them, or a they. You're one of those kinds of people. That's when we start judging people. So the idea is, yes, continue to practice discernment as the church. Stand for what is right according to God's word, God's standard. We still believe God's word is our compass today for how we live, but we do that with a posture of humility. The second message that I couldn't get out of my mind was a message I gave last fall in our series in Ephesians, when we talked about the difference between the things in God's word that are clear God's standards versus those gray areas. I used the illustration, if you weren't here, of the difference between double yellow lines when we're driving and passing lanes when you're driving. Some of you might remember that, right? If you're out on the road right now and you're driving and there's a double yellow line, what does that mean? Don't pass. It is illegal for you to pass. That is a boundary you cannot cross. On the other hand, if there's a passing lane, it means you're given some freedom to pass in that situation. Use your discretion in order to pass. But this is a road where you might be able to pass. And we talked about how in the Bible there are clearly some double yellow lines that God gives us. Things that we are not to cross. And we talked about some of those things in Ephesians, right? Like uh, immorality, sexual immorality, stealing, some of these things. Those are double yellow lines. And yet, our life is full of all kinds of the other stuff. 
which is the passing lane kinds of issues, right? I was thinking about it this week. I can come up with a hundred passing lane issues in the church. They are everywhere. For example, should Christians celebrate Halloween? What should Christians wear when we come to church? Should we wear our Sunday best or should we just come as we are? What kind of music should we worship to? Here's a big one. What about alcohol? What does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, clearly, a double yellow line about alcohol is we are not to get drunk. You cross that double line, you're entering into sin. However, Christians from all over the world have come to different conclusions about whether we should even drink or not, right? The latest one that I was talking about with some of my college friends uh, just about a month ago, I go and meet with them every year, was should Christians shop at Target? Right? Now that they've passed these laws, should we support a store like Target? We're talking passing lane issues. Now, what do those two messages have to do with each other? Well, here's the question that's really been marinating in my life and how these connect. The question I'm asking is how do we, as the church, live with discerning spirits but non judgmental when it comes to things we disagree about, those non-passing lane things? Now, that's a mouthful, so let me simplify it for you there on your notes. How do we live in unity when we disagree on non-essentials? How do we live in unity as the church when we disagree on non-essentials? Now, the reason this is an important question to ask, because like, if you want God's like, top 10, unity is like up there, big time. He wants us as the church to be unified. It's very, very important to him. Psalm 133 says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Later, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and you remember he says to them, how are people going to know you're my disciples? It's going to be by the way that you love one another. That's a unity thing. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays in John 17 what's known as the great high priestly prayer. And what is the main theme of Jesus' prayer is he's about to leave this earth and ascend into heaven. Lord, Father, would they be unified as you and me are unified. Unity is a big deal. And yet, what's interesting is the church is also one of the most diverse places even in the first century, right? The church had people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of thoughts, all different kinds of attitudes. And so you've got this mishmash of people coming together, and Jesus says, pursue unity. Well, how does that even actually work? How do we learn to love one another in unity, even in the midst of our diversity? Well, in Romans 14, Paul tells us what we need to know and what we need to do if we really want to maintain unity amidst the diversity of our church. And I just got to tell you, there is no doubt in my mind that this is a relevant message for us today. I cannot see how if you aren't seeing this in some way every day in your life, right? Like this is constantly something that we see in our life. So I'm hoping, I'm praying that this might be helpful for us as we seek to be a church that is unified even in the midst of our differences of opinions on certain things because when we seek unity in this way, the church will shine the way Jesus intended it to in this world. Like we really need this. 
if we want to be the church God wants us to be. So let's dive in. I'm going to have you read the very first verse of Romans 14 on your notes there. I've printed it there. This really sums up everything I've been saying so far. Let's read it. It says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, another way to translate verse 1, and this is really important, is except the one whose faith is weak. Now, here's the important part. Without passing judgment on disputable matters. So there it is. You got both things that I've been talking about here, right? Don't judge one another in the sense that Jesus forbade when it comes to passing lane things. And yet, that is the constant temptation of my life. If your opinion does not line up with my opinion on this or that issue, immediately the danger for me is to turn into judgment mode. Right? To think, well, how could you think that? I'm going to use an example uh, throughout this whole message when we talk through the various things, and here it is. I've told you this in the past. Peggy and I have decided that for us, we're not going to see rated R movies. We just have come to the conclusion that nothing good comes from watching rated R movies. Now, we've made exceptions in historical type movies like Saving Private Ryan, but generally speaking, this is just something that we've decided to do in our lives. Now, picture the scene. Imagine Peggy and I are walking into the movie theater going to our PG or PG. PG-13 movie, and I see my brother and sister in Christ, people from this church family, (laughs) walking into a rated R movie. Friends, I'm telling you, immediately, the danger becomes for me to become that person's judge and to sit in condemnation over them, which is exactly what Jesus forbade. Substitute any hundred of current issues going on in our our world right now, right? It is so easy for us to jump on the judgmental train. Well, apparently this judgmentalism isn't just a 21st century thing. It was going on in the first century as well, though the issues were different. Look at verse 2 in Romans 14 and the two issues that were causing such problems in the church at Rome. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Can you imagine the scene here? Can you, can you picture what's going on? Right, you've got the church at Rome, which is full of diversity. You've got people who have come from a Jewish background who are Christ followers, and you've got people who are Gentiles. What are Gentiles? Anybody who is not Jewish coming into this church, and they're all supposed to somehow figure it out and live in unity together. Now, Rome was a hotbed of idol worship. So what would happen is oftentimes animals would get sacrificed at one of these idols. Most commentaries believe this is what Paul's dealing with here, right? An animal would get sacrificed, and then they would take the meat from that sacrifice and sell it at the marketplace. And the question became, could Christians buy the meat 
that was being sold at this marketplace. Not drink the blood, but can they bl- or eat the blood, but can they eat the meat sold at this marketplace? And there were a group of Christians who said, no, we can't know if any of this meat is kosher or clean, and so we're just going to be vegetarians. It's not right for us to eat meat. Others, on the other hand, were saying, no, we're free to eat the meat. So picture the scene, same as the movie theater. I see my Christian brother or sister, maybe I'm the vegetarian one, and I see them coming out of a marketplace with some meat. Immediately, what's my danger? They must not really love Jesus. If they're eating that meat, they're not not loving Jesus the way they should. And then the person who bought the meat sees them on the street, and they say something to them, and what's their immediate thought? How small-minded are these people? Don't they know they're free in Christ in this area? And so both sides, here we go. The judgmentalism begins. Second issue happens in verse 5. We see one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. Here, the controversy was probably about Sabbath observance. Again, remember, there were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians were most likely saying, we need to continue to observe the Sabbath the way it's laid out. And the Gentile Christians were saying, no, every day is holy unto the Lord. So the judgmentalism began. It got so bad that they actually had labels for each other. They became its instead of people, right? And Paul uses these labels in chapters 14 and 15. He calls them the weak and the strong. The law-observing Jewish Christians are the weak, and the liberated Gentile Christians are called the strong. Now, we got to define those terms because immediately I hear that and I go, well, I don't want to be the weak. But what is Paul really talking about when he uses these terms? Well, he's not talking about them being weak in their faith. He's talking about a weakness in their assurance that their faith permits them to do certain things, okay? He's not saying that this, these people aren't saved. He's not saying they don't even trust Christ. In fact, we're going to see throughout this chapter that it is the, quote, weak Christians who all, oftentimes are the most fervent for Christ, the most diligent in following Christ. Where they are weak is that there are these remnants of a legalistic spirit that still clings to them. They have not worked out the gospel of freedom in their lives. Listen, if you've been saved by grace alone, how often have we talked about this? You can no longer prove yourself to God by the way you live. You are already 100% accepted, right? And so following these rules and these regulations is not a way for me to earn God's favor. On the other hand, you got strong Christians, strong, who is someone who knows they've been saved by the gospel and therefore understands that there are areas in which they are now free. For example, eating this meat, So here, a weak Christian in this town was saying, we must not eat this meat. It would be wrong for us to eat the meat, even though Christ says we're free to eat any food. Their danger is that my attitude becomes, you must not really love Jesus if you eat meat. On the other side, you've got the strong Christian who's saying, I'm free to eat meat. But the danger is that they can take their freedom so far. That when a Christian brother or sister who does not eat meat comes into their lives, they go, oh, you are so small-minded. 
I can't believe that you don't allow yourself to do that. I created a little picture for us uh, to consider here. Take a look at this. Here's what we're dealing with here. All right, we got people who lean towards the legalism side, and we got people who lean towards the license side. Now, all of this should sound very familiar to you if you've ever read through the New Testament, because Paul's letters are almost all dealing with these two issues right here. There are churches that find themselves going on either one of the two extremes of these two things. For example, we studied the letter to Galatians not too long ago. I'm going to dare and ask you for participation right here. Where did the church at Galatia lean on these two extremes? Any of you remember? Legalism, big time. They actually wanted to add something to the gospel. Like, you need to be circumcised if you want to be saved. And Paul writes them, whoa, 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 whoa. You are saved by God's grace alone. There is nothing you can add to the gospel. It's Christ plus nothing. On the other hand, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? Oh boy. You got a church that says, man, I am free to do anything. And they did anything and everything. And do you think Paul wrote them was like, that's awesome. You're totally free in Christ. No, he writes and says these amazing things like your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Don't you know that what you do with your body is an act of worship? Keep it pure. Keep it holy. And so all throughout scripture, we've got these two extremes going on right now. Here's the big truth that shook me this week. I don't often have epiphanies. In fact, I get nervous when people use the word epiphany. So I'll just say, I don't have to have like the ticker or whatever Jeff says across my mind, but this was like a clear Holy Spirit invading my life moment this week. It couldn't have been anything else. The Holy Spirit of God reminded me, can you keep that up there for a second, that picture? The Holy Spirit reminded me, hey Steve, you can be either of these depending on the issue. You're like, big deal. No, that's like a huge thing for us to acknowledge. I can tend towards legalism on some issues, and I can tend towards license on some issues. And why that's such a big deal? You remember the G.I. Joe slogan, knowing is half the battle? Knowing that is half the battle for unity. Knowing that I might not always be right. Even though I tend to think I am. Knowing that I'm actually not Jesus is half the battle towards unity. And so I just say the first thing we got to get in our minds is remembering I I could be leaning too far in one of these two directions on any given issue. But there's some other things Paul wants us to know about this. And so we're going to walk through three things he wants us to know about pursuing unity in our diversity. The first thing we need to know is that genuine acceptance is the only option for those accepted by God. I'm doing a play on words here. Genuine acceptance is the only option for those accepted by God. We see this in verse 1, in verse 3, and starting in verse 7. It says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, listen, we belong to the Lord. 
For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul uses this word accept twice in this passage. It's the same word for welcome. And the idea here is, how can we not welcome people into our lives whom God has welcomed into his church? We're in Romans chapter 14, which suggests there's 13 chapters before this, right? And Romans chapters 1 through 8 are all about the fact that every one of us who know Christ, any one of us who are in his church at one time in our lives, were sinners apart from him. Like no hope apart from Christ. But the great news that Paul writes about in Romans is that we have been justified, made right in Christ with God. And beyond that, he has accepted us, welcomed us into his family. And so Paul is making a little play on words here. In chapter 14, he's saying, listen, how can you, who have been welcomed into God's family, have these kinds of attitudes towards people who have also been welcomed into God's family? Are you above God in these areas? How can you condemn anyone? For whom there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The second thing we need to know is that, and this I guarantee is going to be an epiphany for some of you. The second thing we need to know is that we can disagree over disputable matters and both be right with God. This is revolutionary for some people. Wait, what? If your opinion doesn't line up exactly with mine on this passing lane issue, you could be right too? Well, where am I getting this? Well, I'm getting this from verses 5 and 6, especially 5. It says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, you need to think out your behavior. You need to think out that issue, right? In the first place, that means you need to really go to the Bible, And determine whether the Bible condemns that practice or you're actually free to practice it. Whether it leaves your conscience free. Is it really a double line issue or is it a passing lane issue? Then secondly, even if the Bible leaves your conscience free in that, you better act according to your conscience on that issue. A Christian should not engage in a particular practice unless they have waited against scripture and they are firmly convinced in their own mind that it is right for them. And if they are convinced, I love it. Paul says, you can do it to the Lord, right? He, you can do it as worship to him in verse 8. But if it's wrong for you, if you're convinced it's still wrong, then you can avoid it for the Lord. You can avoid it for the Lord. Listen, if the Lord convicts that something is wrong for you in your life, even if it's a gray area, you better not do it. Even if other Christians are doing it. Let's take my example of the rated R movie. There they are, walking into the theater. Oh, I saw the preview for that. That looked really good. You know, if they can see it, maybe I could see it. I mean, just this one. It wouldn't be too bad for me to go see this rated R movie. And so instead of our little PG-13 movie, I go into the rated R theater. At that moment, I'm telling you, according to Scripture, I have sinned. Because I've gone against my conscience, the thing God has put on my heart many years ago, that this is something, a line that we don't want to cross. The thing is, though, we can both be right with God. The third thing Paul wants us to know 
is that we must remember God is the judge and we are not. That'd be good for some of us to write on our mirrors when we get home. I am not the judge. Like to see that first thing every morning, that'd be good for me. I submit to the lordship of Christ, and so that's why I refrain from judging others, because one day I'm going to stand before the real judge, and I'm going to be held accountable for my attitudes, for the way I lived, for my practices. Look at verse 10. You then, I just think Paul's exasperated here. Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And so he comes to his conclusion in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Again, the word judge there is not talking about stop practicing discernment. Nor, really important, is it saying stop practicing holding other people accountable in the body of Christ about double yellow line things. Like if I see my brother or sister crossing double yellow line things, I talk to them about it. I hold them accountable. I go to them as Matthew 18 says, right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's making the point that we stop condemning them in our heart. Paul makes the point that both groups, strong and the weak, hey, we're both going to have to answer to God for our attitudes towards others. So it's good to remember every day, he is the Lord and I am not. He is the Lord and I am not. So if those are the three things we need to know about keeping unity, what can we do in order to make sure our unity stays strong? Well, the rest of chapter 14 is like a master class on four applications of what we can do to pursue unity as the church. Let's start with the second half of verse 13. He says, instead, instead of judging, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. First thing we should do to keep unity is determine to not be a source of stumbling. To not be a source of stumbling. We must determine not to be a willing or unwilling cause of a weaker brother stumbling. Listen, the idea behind this here is really this deliberately flaunting my freedom in Christ. Like knowing that there are some people who won't eat meat, and I know who they are, and I'm going to eat meat right in front of them. Like I'm setting up my grill in their backyard. Let's take the rated R example again. Let's say my brother and sister who went to the rated R movie, we meet in the lobby afterwards, and they knew my conviction about this. Now you all know. And they're like, oh, it's too bad that that's where you stand on this, because this movie was incredible. That's deliberately flaunting their freedom. Or they send out a group text to all my friends. Hey, Friday night, we're going to such and such a movie. Well, that's putting a stumbling block in my path if they know that that is a decision I've made in my life, right? Like the key to exercising freedom, Paul gets to it here, is acting in love. 
It's not deliberately flaunting the freedoms we have in Christ, doing whatever I want. It's like walking a tightrope, right? Like that continuum I had up there earlier, like we're constantly moving in between these two extremes of license and legalism, and it is my duty as a Christian when I am practicing my freedom, not just to think about how it's going to affect me, but how it's going to affect others. And so what does that look like? Well, here's a picture of what it looks like. Love. We've defined love here as 100% truth and 100% grace. Right? Jesus was full of both. That's how we practice love. I love the question I think Jeff asked several years ago that we've used again and again here. I have it on your notes here. How do we practice love in these situations? Well, here's a great question to ask. Do I care more about being right or relating rightly? Do I care more about being right on an issue? Uh, I'm talking again about not the double yellow line stuff. I'm talking about passing lane issues. Do I care more about it? Or do I care more about relating rightly? In every given situation, we ask the question, what is the way of love here? What would be the way of love? Of course, the question I asked myself as I was going over this was like, how far do we go in applying this? Like, if I fully apply what Paul says here, will my conduct be controlled by the narrowest Christian in our church? No. You know why? Because that's not love either. That's called legalism. That's called legalism. The mystery of this and the frustration of this is that God gives every single individual Christian the responsibility to decide for themselves what love looks like in passing lane situations. I talked to a guy after the first service. I totally relate to him. He's like, I just want it like number one, number two, number three, number four. But we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't learn. We wouldn't see how we can really love one another as the church in our diversity, would we? Second thing we must do to promote unity is to focus on eternals, not externals. To focus on eternals, not externals. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Now read verse 17 out loud on your notes there with me. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. It's so easy for us recovering Pharisees like me to make the Christian life a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's what the Pharisees did. We see it in the Gospel of Luke already as we've been going through it this spring. Making such a big deal about the externals. It doesn't mean externals are unimportant. But the eternals are much more important. What are the eternals? Were there things like righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit? Christ died equally for the weak and the strong. If I insist on my liberty, it might tear you down, but love, it will build you up. Listen, what is most important to God is not what I do for him. It's who I'm becoming. It's who the church is becoming. 
It's eternal things, right? It's not external things. Now, they play a role, but they're not the most important. What's most important is who we are becoming. We are becoming his bride. The church is called the bride of Christ. And so we focus on those eternal things that matter most. I said it this way a lot in our, the Christian history class I taught this last year for the school, schooling I'm in. We, they know that everybody who's in the class knows this line now. It's major in the majors and minor in the minors. We major in the majors. There are some majors, and we major in them. But we minor in the minors. We minor in the minors. Third thing we can do to promote unity is we can pursue what brings peace and mutual edification. I get this straight from verse 19, which I think is the key verse in this whole chapter. Let's read it out loud together. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to to fall. When we exercise our freedom in Christ, we must always ask ourselves the question, is what I'm doing building others up, especially those younger or less experienced in the faith? And if I can't answer that in the affirmative, then I refrain from doing it. This is really hard for us as Americans to get our minds around. Because one of the highest values of American society is individualism. It seeps its way into the church too. Me and Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. No, it isn't. It's us and Jesus. Always, it's us and Jesus. We are called the body of Christ. We belong to one another. We are joined together by him. And so if I really start thinking that way in plurality instead of individualism, I'm going to be so less concerned about exercising my individual freedom and so much more concerned about what I can do in my life to build up the church. Like things that lead to peace and mutual edification. Have you seen the news this week? You think the world needs some people who are pursuing together peace and mutual edification? Oh my goodness, how we need that. Part of what that is going to require is us laying aside our individualism and coming together as the larger body of Christ. Pursuing peace and justice and mutual edification. For those, not just part of Cherry Hills, but for the church with a capital C. The fourth thing we can do to promote unity is to live with a clear conscience. I love this. Paul comes to the end of chapter 14, and he sort of just sums it all up. He gives a word to the, quote, weak Christian and a word to the strong Christian. First, a word to the strong, verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, what things? Passing lane things. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You get the idea here? Listen, you are free in Christ. But if you know something might cause somebody to stumble, just keep your freedom between you and God. You will be blessed if you think less about your individual freedom and more about those who are in the church body. 
Then he says a word to the weak believer in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you believe in your heart that something is wrong, if going to rated R movies is wrong for me, and I still decide that I'm going to do it, it's sin. It is a sin in my life. So until you can truly get to the place in your conscience where you have no more doubts, then the best approach is to refrain from doing whatever that thing is. Now, I know this is a lot of information, so as we close, can I just kind of sum this whole thing up for us? How do we maintain unity on non-essential issues? Well, the first and most important principle, I didn't even talk about this, is we have to determine if it's really a non-essential issue, right? How do we do that? Still got you here. We're almost done. I know lunch. I'm hungry. But like, how do we determine if it's an essential or non-essential? It's that book you got in your lap right now. We go to Scripture. We go to Scripture, and here's what's so cool. If there's broad disagreement among Bible-honoring Christians on some issue, I hope you're hearing me. If there's disagreement among Bible-honoring Christians on some issue, then we come to the point where we can conclude this is a disputable matter. Now, every, anyone who wants to put everything into the disputable area, and I know people like that, they need to be warned of the dangers of that tendency, which I talked about is what? Legalism. Everything's disputable. There's a right and wrong to every single issue. There's a danger of that. On the other hand, anyone who wants to put nothing in the areas of disputable matters needs to be warned of the danger of that perspective, which again is license. After a group of Christians has put something in a disputable area, then we follow Paul's advice. And here's Paul's advice in a nutshell. If you find yourself the weaker Christian on an issue, here's what you do. You really review the biblical data. You are willing to rethink your position. And most importantly, you refuse to condemn those who disagree with you. Additionally, you allow them in their conscience to practice it. If you find yourself on the strong side of an issue, here's what you do. You review the biblical data. You humble yourself and are willing to rethink your position. And then you curb your freedom in order to avoid discouraging a fellow believer if that would do that. Harming them. Causing them to stumble. When you mix that all together... What do you get? Church. Or at least the way the church should be. Unified in our diversity. How cool would that be? You know, there's a saying that has been going on through church history for some time. Nobody knows exactly who said it. People have said uh, different forms of it. But I have it printed on your notes here. And I think this is a great way for us to end. It says, in essentials... Unity. Like when we come to double yellow line things, and we know they're double yellow lines according to God's word, we're unified. Right? If somebody's going to say Jesus wasn't fully God, I say, uh, that's an essential. And I can't be unified with you on that. If someone wants to say there are no sexual boundaries, I'm going to say, God's word is pretty clear about the boundaries. I can't be unified with you on that. I can go on. 
Second idea here, though, is in non-essentials, liberty. And that's what this passage is all about, right? Maybe you've come to a different conclusion on this issue. Is it possible that you and I can both be right with God? It's possible. It's possible. And then in all things, charity. Or how about we use our word, love. In all things, love. Normally, on a Sunday right now, I would pray for us. But instead of an individual praying for the whole body of Christ, I've written out a corporate prayer for us to pray together. I'm going to invite you to stand. There's going to be my part, and then there'll be your part, which is bolded. But we are going to pray together as Christ's body about this pursuit of unity in the midst of diversity. So Romans 14, 19, I mentioned, I think it's the key verse, says, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So as a church community, Lord, we pray that you would help us deal with disputable matters in a way that would lead to unity and peace. This is your part. Jesus, help us live in unity. When we are tempted to judge rather than love, Jesus, help us live in unity. When we are tempted to exercise our freedom at the cost of another, Jesus, help us live in unity. When we are tempted to treat our brother or sister with contempt, Jesus, help us live in unity. When we find ourselves adding to division, Jesus, help us live in unity. In the inevitable misunderstandings and miscommunications we may face or will face, Jesus, help us live in unity when we would rather be right than relate rightly. Jesus, help us live in unity. Now all of us, teach us to imitate you, Jesus, to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be slow to anger and rich in love and to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Amen. Well, it's my sincerest prayer that you find these words immediately applicable to your life as you walk out of these doors this morning. I mean, can you imagine what it would look like if we really lived this way, if we really had our greatest heart's desire to love one another in these ways? Man. The church would be like an unstoppable force. If you need prayer this morning, I invite the members of our prayer team to come down front. We're always willing to come alongside of you to pray with you. If you just need encouragement, maybe you want to make this your church home today, we'd love to talk to you about that and welcome you for the rest of you. Let's be the church in this world that so desperately needs us. God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.